I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka's Sounds of Science. today by Karina Perator, Product Manager, Neuroscience Discovery at Charles River. We will be discussing the relatively recent resurgence of research on neuroinflammation, which could hold the key to new therapeutic avenues for CNS diseases. CNS, or central nervous system diseases, are notoriously difficult to treat, and this new research approach will hopefully lead us to a more successful outcome for patients. Welcome, Karina. Thank you. So let's start with the basics. What is neuroinflammation and why is it getting so much attention right now? So the generic definition of neuroinflammation is defined as an inflammatory response within the brain or the spinal cord. It can happen as a result of a variety of cues, including infection, traumatic brain injury, toxic metabolites, or autoimmunity. As a result of these injuries, inflammation will produce these pro-inflammatory chemicals. Mm -hmm. Uh, We can call them danger-associated molecules. They're called, yes, (laughs) (laughs) cytokines, chemokines, reactive oxygen species, Mm -hmm. and other secondary cell signaling messengers. These pro-inflammatory mediators are produced by our immune cells and our resident um, central nervous system glia which are a class of cells that function at the intersection of the nervous system and immune systems. Mm -hmm. So the immune cell of the brain is called microglia. And these are essentially the brain macrophages, so to speak, um, that are capable of detecting these danger-associated molecules, such as the chemokines and cytokines. Recent evidence has shown that the cytokine signaling from the peripheral side of the protective blood brain barrier. So the outside of the brain can trigger a mirrored response by glial activation Mm -hmm. inside the blood brain barrier. And this can facilitate cytokine release from the microglia. So the degree of neuroinflammation depends on the duration and course of this um, primary insult or injury to the Mm -hmm. brain. That intensity and duration um, accounts for whether the immune signals can be protective or destructive. So an example of good inflammation would be in our normal state, a brief and controlled inflammatory response that would be considered beneficial is uh, immune to brain signals after an infection, like a Mm -hmm. viral or bacterial infection that would induce behaviors of sickness. And so this like is, the inflammation tells you to take naps or slow down or drink fluids or whatever it is. Or give you a fever, a rash, okay. some kind of physiological response. Okay. Um, and that's protective for us. Bad inflammation, on the other hand, is considered uh, chronic and uncontrolled. And this is typically characterized by the production of all these danger-associated molecules after a trauma such as an insult to the brain, a brain injury. So there's a low level of chronic inflammatory response, which is actually um, occurring in us as we sit here right now. It's part of the normal aging process. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It leads to neuronal plasticity and cognitive impairments over time. When you have a high degree of this chronic inflammation, it can be really damaging to the nervous system. And that's what's characteristically prevalent in neurodegenerative disorders. And so that's one of the main reasons researchers are um, 
interested more now than ever to understanding the role of inflammation in mm -hmm. neurodegeneration. Initially, central nervous system immune privilege was construed as isolated from the immune system by this blood-brain barrier, that's mm -hmm. the protective layer over our brain. And this was due to a lack of training lymphatics and this apparent immune incompetence of microglia, which is basically mm -hmm. a lack of producing a normal immune response following exposure to some kind of injury. Okay. But... Um, Recent data has altered that viewpoint by revealing that the central nervous system is, it's not isolated or passive in its interactions with the immune system. So peripheral immune cells can actually penetrate the blood-brain barrier okay. and cross through. Central nervous system neurons and glia also regulate um, macrophage and lymphocyte responses mm -hmm. outside of the brain. And then microglia are actually immune competent, not incompetent, but differ from the ma other macrophages in that um, they don't um, have a direct neuroprotective lymphocyte response <laughs> within the brain. So this newer view of CNS immune privilege, so to speak, is opening the door for therapies designed to harness lymphocyte responses, mm -hmm. which basically implies that central nervous system autoimmune diseases like multiple sclerosis um, can result uh, not just from neuronal or glial dysfunction, but also from immune system dysfunction. And finally, <laughs> um, severe neuronal and glial dysfunction associated with neurodegenerative disorders like Alzheimer's disease um, likely alters these central nervous system specific lymphocyte responses. And this is all new um, in the field. So it's it's really exciting that people are starting to look at this avenue as an yeah. alternative for... Like how new? I would say in the last 10 years, it's wow. gaining momentum. Uh, it's always been known that the immune system and the brain interact through this mm -hmm. gut-brain axis, which we can talk about a little bit more. But yeah, the B and T cells of the immune system, no one would have thought that there was any relation to that with neurodegenerative diseases. That's so weird. It is. <laughs> it, it is. Um, but it's also opening the door for new, for new types of therapies. Can you give us a good example of how researchers are using neuroinflammation to tackle tricky diseases? Yeah, so one such example I can give you is with Alzheimer's disease. It's been in the news a lot this year. Mm -hmm. um, much of the research underlying the cause of the disease has primarily focused on amyloid beta, which mm -hmm. is a protein that accumulates in the brain as the disease progresses. Mm -hmm. Excess amyloid beta proteins will form these clumps or plaques um, that disrupt communication between the brain cells and can also trigger inflammation, which then leads to a loss of neurons and brain tissue. So amyloid beta plaques became the major focus for Alzheimer's researchers. Do they think that that's what actually causes memory loss and those other symptoms, or is it just the, they're not quite sure? They're or? not quite sure. Huh. It just happened to be something that was prevalent in probably about 50% of the cases. Not oh. everybody who has Alzheimer's had these plaques. Interesting. So it was an interesting target in that sense, because there's other proteins that form these tangles or yeah. um, fibrils and whatnot. Um, that haven't been investigated as oh. thoroughly for therapeutic drug discovery. So these um, amyloid beta plaque was the primary target for drug discovery companies, pharmaceutical companies for the last 20 to 30 years. 
and they've mostly been developing vaccines mm-hmm. and antibody-based drugs to remove the amyloid plaques that were already there. And when those didn't work, they decided to start focusing on inhibiting the protein versus... Um, Trying to get rid of it. Exactly. Yeah. So they started developing a set of drugs called base inhibitors that would target the protein that's responsible for making the amyloid beta protein, and it's called amyloid precursor protein. Fortunately, um, as we learned earlier this year, those trials also have failed. So now researchers are looking outside of the amyloid hypothesis into new targets. Um, And it's also being more accepted that microglia may play a significant role in disrupting neurogenesis, which is basically the creation of new brain cells Mm -hmm. in those with Alzheimer's disease. So the immune cell of the brain, the microglia, is also responsible for repairing synapses and destroying dying cells, but it also clears out excess amyloid beta proteins. Okay. So it's very protective and it's um, interesting that it hasn't been a target until most recently. But there is a UK-based organization called the Dementia Consortium, uh, which invests in research projects aiming to provide validation of targets for the treatment of dementia. Some of the funded projects include targets in neuroinflammation. Actually, that's probably the primary target. And they're targeting proteins involved in the brain, um, immune response to pathogens, as well as the microglia and other immune system regulators of neurodegeneration. Actually, just this year uh, and within this month, Charles River has joined this consortium and will function as an expert advisor for grant recipients of this and also in consulting from our early discovery portfolio. So there is a neuroscience conference coming up. Can you tell us about some of the presenters covering this topic? Yeah. Um, we actually have Malu Tanzi, who is a prof- well, she is a professor at the University of Florida. And she actually sat on our panel discussion and was our keynote speaker for the Neuroinflammation Symposium that we held in June. And so I looked in to see what she was presenting at SFN this year or Neuroscience 2019. And she has a couple of really great presentations. Uh, One of them is how an obesogenic diet, so a diet high in sugar and fats basically, Uh may influence the brown immune system. Everyone's favorite. (laughs) (laughs) These are addictive. Foods are just as addictive. Addictive yep. drugs. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> so this poster that she has is actually in relation to Alzheimer's disease and um, showing how a diet high in fat and sugar can dysregulate several signaling pathways that will trigger not just immune and metabolic responses, but um, how it's linked to increased risk for Alzheimer's. So it's a um, very, very hot topic. But her other nano symposium at neuroscience was cleverly named lurking between the brain and gut. (laughs) And um, the lurking part is the clever part of the name because it involves an enzyme called LURK2, which is L-R-R-K-2. Now it's good. That's a good one. (laughs) Yeah. I thought that was cute when I saw it. It's like, oh, there's someone in marketing on that team or something. Or at least someone who just likes puns. I mean, either way. (laughs) Um, But it looks like a really cool 
mini symposium. They're going to discuss links between Parkinson's disease and the gastrointestinal system. Mm -hmm. And this enzyme, which is known as one of the greatest genetic contributors to Parkinson's disease, and it's associated with sporadic Parkinson's disease, also has an increased risk for Crohn's disease. Oh, okay. Um, So I don't know if you've, in the literature, I don't know, probably over 10 years ago, um, people started noticing that these gastrointestinal symptoms preceded Parkinson's disease symptoms. And that seems to be a very, very common theme. And so people are now finally looking at that link and trying to understand what's going on there. Very cool. It is. We also have a Charles River presenter who's going to be presenting in the field of neuroinflammation. Mm -hmm. Her name is Tulia Hutala. And they're going to be looking at LPS, which stands for lipopolysaccharide. And it's a very common um, gram-negative bacteria component of the cell wall that is frequently used to induce inflammation in cells. Mm. And so they're going to explain how they use this in mice and other in vitro assays to modulate or see how other neuroinflammatory responses are affected. So looking at cytokine release Mm -hmm. and and, and microglia. Okay. So you would never use this to create inflammation on purpose as a treatment, right? It's just for the models? just for the models. All right, cool. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, I can't think of therapeutic inflammation that being a thing that doesn't yeah, yeah. good good <laughs> it's definitely a good model for inflammation <laughs> well, speaking, speaking of which when i think of inflammation in the body i kind of think of the gi tract like you talk about having problems down there with inflammation and i understand that the gut microbiome actually does seem to have an effect on the nervous system you mentioned a little bit of that before but could you go back to that Yes, yes, you're correct. Um, evidence has been mounting that supports the notion of several environmental factors, including diet and the gut microbiota on neuroinflammatory disorders. This phenomenon, as I mentioned before, is called the gut-brain axis, which is basically the, the bi-directional communication between the gut such as bacteria, Mm -hmm. and the central nervous system. Uh, And it involves not only the immune system, but the vagus nerve, Mm -hmm. which um, I actually had to look up. I didn't know what this was, (laughs) but it runs from the brain through the face and to the abdomen. And then it also includes any neurometabolite production, which could be involved in uh, the gut as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of neurotransmitters in the brain that are also in the gut interestingly. Hmm. So there's a plethora of factors that can shape the gut microbiota. Yeah. And the diet is the most persistent stress. So basically, gut microbiota and dietary metabolites can affect neuroinflammation in a few ways by affecting the functional activity of the local resident cells. So not just the microglia of the brain, but also the macrophages Mm -hmm. of the immune system. And it can also affect the immune cell entry into the nervous system. Mm -hmm. And there's some research around how um, it also affects the peripheral immune responses that then leak into the brain. So what type of drugs look most promising for treating neuroinflammation? Speaking pharmacology-wise, outside of um, the newly evolving stem cell therapies Mm -hmm. for things like traumatic brain injury, there are these other drug-based therapies some people are looking at 
um, naturally occurring hormones like melatonin, which is derived from the pineal gland of the brain. Some literature suggests that it provides neuroprotection, but people are also looking at antibiotics, which have shown to reduce inflammation. Hmm. Um, drug therapies are evolving around inhibiting those pro-inflammatory metabolites like the danger associated molecules we talked about before. Mm -hmm. And there's also some gene therapies that are evolving to treat um, not just neuroinflammatory, but neurodegenerative disorders in general. But um, to be perfectly honest, the most direct route, non-pharmacologically <laughs> speaking, is, and no one probably wants to admit, is it comes down to diet. Mm -hmm. um, it's essentially the primary factor in regulating the microbial diversity that affects the immune system, hence right. the brain. Yeah. Further research is actually needed to find the specific dietary exactly. factors yeah. that shape the gut micro, uh, bacteria and the uh, metabolites of the food that circulate into the blood and make its way to the brain. Yeah. You've probably heard of this syndrome called the leaky gut syndrome, mm -hmm. where the intestinal walls break down and these toxic metabolites from food can leak through into the bloodstream. And then once it's yeah. in the bloodstream, it can go anywhere. Right. And they do cross the blood brain barrier. Yeah. But, but the, I guess the specifics are really what was important there. You know, as much as I love cake, if I had yeah. a debilitating <laughs> disease and they told me to change my diet, I probably would, but they yeah. would need to tell me what to eat. Exactly. I, yeah. And I think there is a lot of research now Evolving. It's just hard to do these human population controlled mm -hmm. studies, but it's something that needs to happen. Right. And you can show something in a mouse and it doesn't reproduce in a right. human. That's so often the case. You yeah. can cure Parkinson's and Alzheimer's phenotypes in, in yeah. animals, but it doesn't translate over to a human. Yeah. And so um, that's basically what we need are these very huge human population controlled studies or case-by-case case situations. Yeah. You read on the internet all the time about these alternative diets, Whole30, mm -hmm. yeah. um, paleo, keto, and yeah. the more restrictive whole foods, plant-based. Right. And it's not, it's just not possible that they're all right, but it's also probably equally impossible that they're all wrong. So yeah. And I think you can take components from them and kind of devise a plan for yourself after you eat. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like Bad. really tired. <laughs> Do you feel like your gut is going to explode? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Maybe you shouldn't eat that food. Yeah. And I think the overarching <laughs> theme is sugar. Yeah. Sugar is a huge component to a lot of these psychiatric diseases mm -hmm. or disorders. Um, I think speaking to a more holistic approach to managing health, it actually doesn't take a neuroscientist to conclude <laughs> that diet, lifestyle, exercise, rest, mm -hmm. um, and body work will decrease the stress that also contributes yeah. to neuroinflammation. So uh, finally, can we get into more detail about how gene therapies might be promising for CNS diseases? Sure. So the concept of gene therapy involves the use of this um, inactivated virus to transport this new genetic material into our cells. Mm -hmm. And it would then alter certain genes to either um, treat or prevent that disease. Mm -hmm. And through this technique, researchers would replace, for example, if we look at LERC2 for Parkinson's disease, it would replace that mutated nucleotide with a um, nucleotide that shouldn't be mutated mm -hmm. with a healthy copy. And then it would potentially turn off that disease-causing gene or, or you could even add a new gene to help fight the disease in the body. More often than not, researchers are using what's called the adeno-associated viral, so AAV mm -hmm. vectors, yep. which is emerging as the gene therapy platform for neurological diseases. In preclinical studies, 
Um, these transfected genes encoding whatever therapeutic protein of interest. It could be um, also microRNAs or antibodies um, or gene editing machinery like the uh, infamous CRISPR mm-hmm. that everyone's talking about has been successfully delivered to the central nervous system. So it could be with natural or um, these viral vectors transporting them via various routes of administration. I think it's a little bit tricky to um, get it directly to the point of interest. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's been one of the challenges, but it also um, is specific to the familial genetic mutations Mm -hmm. of diseases and not necessarily the sporadic cases because there may not be a specific mutation to target or fix. Yeah. So there still remain some challenges, but, um, but it's definitely an evolving technology. Well, fingers crossed. Yeah. (laughs) For the medicines of tomorrow. It's true. It's true. (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Uh, I'm Mary Parker, and I've been joined by Karina Parator. Thank you. Thank you.